Well, hopefully you had the opportunity to visit with somebody new or somebody you haven't seen in a long time. Uh, and hopefully you will have even more time after worship today to continue visiting with people. That is the sign of a good and healthy church, that we actually love one another. We don't just show up in the same space and then we all walk out the door and we don't talk at all throughout the rest of the week. But I love seeing how loving and welcoming and warm our church is. And I know that's just a work that the Lord has been doing in us and among us. But if you have been with us for any amount of time, you know that we've been slowly walking through the book of Revelation. And today we are going to be in Revelation chapter 11. And so if you have your Bible with you, or if you want to grab the Pew Bible and go ahead and open to Revelation chapter 11, we're going to read the entirety of that text, because as we said at the very beginning of this series, we're going to read every word, word for word, as we go through it, because Revelation chapter 1 verse 3 reminds us that it is in the reading and hearing of this word that we are actually blessed and so we want to receive whatever blessing it is that the Lord has for us in reading the entirety of its contents. And so hear this word this morning from Revelation chapter 11. Then a measuring rod like a staff was given to me, saying, Get up and measure the sanctuary of God and the altar and those who worship in it. And leave out the court which is outside the sanctuary, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will trample the holy city underfoot for forty-two months. And I will give authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for twelve hundred and sixty days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth." And if anyone wishes to harm them, fire comes out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wishes to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the authority to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. They also have authority over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they wish. And when they have finished their witness, they, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud and their enemies watched them. And then in that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has, come, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, 
we give thanks, we give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your rage came, and the time came for the dead to be judged and to give the reward to the slaves, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the sanctuary of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his sanctuary, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, as we hear this word this morning, it is my heart that my heart and my ears would be open to hear what it is that you are saying. God, that even now as you use me, that you would speak clearly, not just to my heart, but to all of our hearts to hear this good word, this good witness, this good testimony that was given to us. And God, that our hearts would be burning, that we would come alive with what it is that you want to teach us. Just as the two walking the Emmaus road, as they spoke with Jesus and said, were our hearts not burning within us as he taught us the scriptures? Teach us this morning what it is that you want to speak to us. Lord, we love you. We thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as I begin this morning, I actually want to start at the end and then go back to the beginning of this passage. And the reason I want to start at the end is because I'm afraid I won't get to it (laughs) if I leave it for the very end. And so I want to talk about the seventh trumpet real quick for just a moment. And first, I want us to actually go back one verse in verse 14. And it says, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And if you remember, when we were talking about the trumpets two weeks ago, we actually really focused on the woes, the three woes that came as a symbol to be in contrast to the three holies of the holy, holy God. And so there's the holy, holy God against the woe, woe, woe of the evil that existed within the world. And we even turned our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6 and saw Isaiah even saying, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. How can I stand before you, the holy, holy, holy God? And then an angel came with a coal from the altar and touched it to his lips and he was made clean. And We were talking about how great it is that in Jesus, the woes are not our story. Being a part of the family of the holy, holy God is. And then the woes that came to be were this judgment that was going to fall upon the earth against the people that that did not receive the holiness, the repentance that came in Christ Jesus. The work that he accomplished on the cross that was for us And so now we start hearing about these woes that were coming. And we read about how there was fire and plague and all this stuff that fell upon the earth that was upon those on the earth that did not believe. And then we actually open and we start reading about how some of that came to be, right? Because from the perspective of the seven trumpets, it was just bowls being poured out upon the earth. And then during this interlude, 
we actually get a little more picture of what was happening of the two witnesses being a part of the ones that spewed fire from their mouths and were able to shut up the sky so that rain couldn't fall and all these things that they were doing. It even says that they caused plagues to come upon those that came against them, right? And so this sounds really familiar to us as we start thinking about the woes of the trumpets. And so then the angel declares that the second woe is past. And so the two witnesses, their time is done. And then the third woe is coming, and that's the seventh trumpet. And this third woe is the return of Jesus. And you might be thinking, how is that a woe? That sounds like really great news. Jesus is coming back. He has returned. This is good news. Well, it is good news for those that know him and acknowledge him and have bowed before him and call him Lord. But for anyone that has not done that, it is the greatest woe. It's the greatest woe because this is the moment, the final judgment moment where it's like, you didn't repent. And now you get to receive what it is for not repenting. Eternal separation from the Father, from the Son, and from His Spirit, and an eternal hellfire. What a great woe that we read it and we rejoice because Jesus returns. But for everyone that didn't profess him as Christ, it's the greatest woe that they could ever face. It's sad. And it should break our hearts that there are people that will experience this third woe in their life. But for us, it is good news. And I wanted to start there because I think it pulls us back into the rest of chapter 11, into the story of these two witnesses who were completely unwavering in their testimony of Jesus even as the entire world comes against them. And I think that's really important for us to understand. And so the way that I've been teaching us and approaching Revelation is not to try to give you a precise and exact interpretation of what it is and what is to come. But I've been trying to take it and say, okay, well, here's a little bit of the context. Here's a little bit of what's happening. But what does that mean for us right now? And as we hear about this third woe moment that is coming where there will be people condemned eternally, it should wretch our hearts, and then we should go back and read verses 1 through 14 and say, but if I do this, there might be hope for some. Definitely not all, but for some. And so let's start working through this passage together. At first, we read the first two, pa first two verses, and it's kind of weird. It seems a little out of place, a little kind of weird kind of thing going on. John is handed this measuring staff, and he said, hey, go measure all these things. Measure inside the temple. Measure the altar. Measure the worshipers that are in it, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but if one of you just came up here and started taking a meter stick to me, 
I'd be like, no, I swear that says 511. I'm not, I, it's not 59, it's, it's 511, right? I, you'd be a little weirded out, but here it is in this moment, and he's, he's, he's taken this rod, and he's been asked to measure people, but he's saying, but don't go measure the people outside. Don't go measure the people outside of the temple because they're not to be measured. Why? Well, here's the thing that I was thinking about. First of all, let me give you a little context to this. It's, it's kind of the same situation that's happening in Ezekiel's chapter 40 through 48. That's a whole eight chapters. I'm not going to, nine chapters. I'm not going to read them because then we would, you know, way, go way, way over because we know I can talk forever. But if you want to go read it, go ahead. But what that is, it's the vision that Ezekiel is given of the future temple. And that future temple that Ezekiel is seeing isn't the physical temple, it's the church. It's the church. And so if we start putting this into context, we start seeing, oh, so John was told that he's to go measure the church. He's to go measure the bride of Christ. Who is this bride that John is supposed to be measuring? It's this church. It's this church of Jesus Christ. But what we're seeing is that there are those within it. And there are those outside of it. And I think that this is really important for us to understand that the church was always meant to be countercultural to those outside of the church. We were always going to be measured differently than those that were not in the church. Our measure is to be measured against all of Scripture. Their measure is to be measured against their own whims and wills. And yet the standard at the end is but one. Whatever is found in here. This is the final read. This is the final measuring stick. And so as John goes and starts measuring the church. He starts to see, here's who's in it, and those are the ones without it. And here's the thing. I said that the church was always meant to be countercultural, and it's not hard to see today what it was like in Rome. Even, but Rome was worse. The church was persecuted continuously. And let me just say this. The fact that the church has been able to survive and be almost indistinguishable in a way from the rest of its society that surrounds it is a uni uniquely Western thing. This is uniquely Western where the church gets to thrive in peace. But if you read Scripture, you see that the, the people of God have always been persecuted. They've always stand, stood apart from the cultures and societies and civilizations in which they found themselves. And when I say uniquely Western, go to Asia. Go to the Middle East. Go to places where Christianity is not readily accepted and see what happens. Proselytizing is illegal. Good luck being a good witness. And then we start to face a little bit of pushback against the church here, and we think the end is coming. I mean, it is, eventually. I'm not saying it's not. But we start facing a little bit here, and we're like, woe is me. 
but holy, holy is God. Everyone else in the world, they look what we're going through, and they're like, that's nothing. My pastor was beheaded last week because he professed Jesus and wouldn't apostate, wouldn't give him up. So we have it good. But I say that because things are going to start changing. The church is going to, has to start looking different than the world around it. We always should have, but even more so now. We need to look different. And then it goes into this thing about saying, and they're going to be given the ability to trample the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Verse 2. This is, occurs actually a lot throughout apocalyptic literature in the Bible. 42 months, 1260 days, three and a half years. They're all the same number. They all equate to the same thing. Which is all speaking about this great end times tribulation that will eventually come. When the final end is here. But I also want to say this. Is it an exact specific thing? Yeah, maybe, probably. But also, it's a reminder to us that God is even sovereign in the exact amount of time that anyone is given to persecute his church and to per persecute his saints and to come against those that bear witness to the testimony of Jesus. They were only given 42 months. They are not given any less, but they are also not given a minute more. They get 1,260 days, not a day less, not a day more. They're given three and a half years, not half a year less, not half a year more. God is even completely sovereign at the very end as it looks like the church is losing but we know when we hear the seventh trumpet sound, the seventh bowl poured out, the seventh seal released, there's great rejoicing for us, but woe for all those who have not yet proclaimed Jesus as Lord. And so that's all that I want to say about the amount of time given. So let's start talking about the witnesses, because I know that's what you're all really interested in. Who are these two witnesses? Well, I'm not going to give you an answer about who they are, because there's a lot of questions surrounding who they could be. They might be uh, Elisha and Elijah. They might be uh, Joshua and Zerubbabel. I actually think that might be the, the best one, and I'll share that a little bit in a little bit, but they might be Peter and Paul. They might be Moses and Elijah. Who knows, right? They could be anybody. But I don't think the point of us today is to get into the weeds and try to uncover exactly who the two witnesses are, but I think that it's what the two witnesses demonstrate to us is what we need to take away. Because here's the thing, because it says that he will give the authority to his two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. And I want to go back right to the beginning of where I started is woe, the third woe 
is this great moment where there are those who are eternally condemned and it should bring devastation to our hearts that there are going to be those that are separated from God. And here, the two witnesses are presented as ones who come in sackcloth, which is oftentimes a symbol of repentance. And so their witness was to come to the people in the last days to bear witness about Christ in hopes that they might repent and receive what it is that God wanted to offer to them all along in hopes that they wouldn't have to experience the woes themselves. But I also want to think about this as it goes on. It says, and these are who the two are, the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. That's verse 4. So here's where I think the Joshua Zerubbabel thing is the best explanation for who they might be, is in Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 4, it actually starts talking about this very prophecy and the two olive branches and the lampstands that are before the Lord and how those two olive trees are Joshua and Zerubbabel, a priest and a king. And we've already talked about it in here before as we've been walking through Revelation. Who are we? We are the kingdom, we are a kingdom and priests created and separated for God. But also, look at the other thing that they're said. It says they're also the two lampstands. Well, that should take us back to the letters that we've already walked through. And to be reminded that. There were two churches that triumphed in their suffering, Philadelphia and Smyrna. And Jesus told us that the seven lampstands were the seven churches in Asia. And here, two particular lampstands, two particular churches stand out. They triumphed in their suffering. And what happens with these two witnesses is they triumph in their suffering. And so who are the two witnesses? Yeah, I think it might be a literal two people at the end of the age, but I also think it's the testimony of the church. It's the witness of the church. It's the call of the church to be the people of God in the church age. In these last days, ever since Jesus died on the cross and rose again for us, he's calling us to be his witnesses. He's calling us to be the ones that go out, to go forth, to spread the good news of Jesus. Even in the midst of whatever suffering and persecution that we might face as a result of it. And so I want to read just a little bit from Acts chapter 4. No, sorry. Acts chapter uh, 6. And you've probably heard this story before, but it's about a Christian, a follower of the way, if you will. His name is Stephen. And Stephen, this is verse 8 in chapter 6 of Acts chapter 6. And Stephen, full of grace and power, doesn't that sound familiar? The two witnesses were given authority, or that could also be translated as power, he was full of grace and power and was doing great wonders and signs among the people. He was walking in supernatural witness. 
Well, what do the two witnesses do as we read? It says that they had the authority given to them by God. They shut up the sky. They spewed fire from their mouths. They turned water into blood. They stroked the earth with plague. And I'm not saying Stephen was working in those kinds of supernatural power, but supernatural power nonetheless. He was doing great signs and wonders. And any time it talks about in the Old Testament, the prophets that performed these great signs and wonders, think about Moses and Egypt and the plagues, it, said, it was said that he did great signs and wonders. And so Stephen walked in the supernatural witness as provided by God. But listen to this, he was doing these things. But there were some men, verse 9, from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and were arguing with Stephen. But they were unable to oppose him, oppose the wisdom in the spirit by whom he was speaking. Well, the two witnesses went unopposed. And anyone that tried to oppose them, they were struck down by the signs and wonders that came from them. In the same way, we see Stephen bearing witness about the great kingdom of God, and nobody can oppose him because of the good spirit that is within him, that the, wor- that the Lord is working, is the wisdom that was provided by the spirit. And they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and elders and scribes, and they came up to him, dragged him away, and sought him, sought him, brought him to the Sanhedrin. And they put forward false witness who said, This man never ceases speaking words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin saw his face like the face of an angel. And then Stephen goes on to give this incredible defense. An incredible defense and witness of the testimony of Jesus Christ as played out throughout the entire Old Testament. In our Sunday school, we've been talking about how the Old Testament is this grand story of redemption. And that is exactly what Stephen presents in his defense to the Sanhedrin is this grand story of redemption and it culminates in the person of Jesus Christ who is in fact the Son of God. His witness was unwavering before the people that sought to end him. And as we read Revelation chapter 11, we read about two witnesses whose witness was unwavering against a world that wanted them dead. Well, after their 1260 days of prophesying and witnessing to the earth, the beast came out of the abyss and made war against them and prevailed. They were dead. And we think, we read that, and we're like, wow. I thought they were going to make it to the very end of the story. I mean, can you imagine, I mean, just thinking about this, reading through the Bible, and you start reading this one of the Gospels, and you start falling in love with the person of Jesus in the Gospel, and you're like, he's a really great guy. 
but then he dies. And you're like, what? What about the rest of the story? I thought he was going to make it to the end. Well, when we read Stephen's story, after hearing his defense in verse 54, they became furious in their hearts and they began gnashing their teeth at him. Doesn't that sound familiar? I think Jesus talked about a place where there's a gnashing of teeth. They were gnashing their teeth at him, but being full of the Spirit, He gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But crying out with a loud voice, they covered their ears and rushed at him with one accord. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began to stone him. And the witnesses laid aside their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul And they went on stoning stoning Stephen as he was calling out and saying, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Which is another way to say he died. Stephen's dead. And the witnesses are dead, and we know Jesus died. And everyone that we thought would overcome and win in the end is dead. What happened? after three and a half days of their bodies lying in the street in Jerusalem, and as all the people that were there were celebrating, it was almost as if they were having a festival in in honor of the death of these two witnesses. There's like, they died, and this is great news. Let's rejoice and party in the streets because we killed the ones that were coming against us with fire and plagues and shutting up the heavens said they were even exchanging gifts. What a party. And then three and a half days later, their party came to an abrupt end as their lifeless bodies rose from the ground, filled with the breath of God, filled with life. Again, doesn't that sound familiar? In Ezekiel, as he prophesied to the dead bones He said they were filled with the breath of God and they put on flesh and they arose. And the two witnesses arose. And Jesus, if you read the story for the first time, and he arose. And there's rejoicing in heaven, but for all those that do not believe, there is terror and fear that filled them because they're like, Just like the centurion at the foot of the cross, surely this man was the son of God. Surely these witnesses were not lying in the things that they were saying to us. And what ends up happening? They said that many who were not killed gave glory to God for what they saw. The work of God through the two witnesses brought many to repentance in the last days. Stephen, there was a man named Saul, who we also know as Paul, standing there. And I know that Paul had his Damascus Road encounter with Jesus 
But was not there a seed laid by the witness of Stephen, even as Saul stood by and celebrated his stoning and his death? Was there not a seed that God planted through Stephen to work in the heart of Paul so that when Paul had that Damascus Road encounter, he would come and present himself before the Lord and then before Ananias and to have the scales removed from his eyes. And what's the very next thing he did? He went to the synagogue and preached Jesus. And people were saying, was not this the one that was just persecuting the church? And now he stands before us telling us that Jesus is the Son of God? What a witness. Church, our witness is to be unwavering in the face of persecution, in the face of everyone that wants to come against us, in the face of people that say, you're a bigot, you're a heretic, you're whatever, you don't love people. You are to be unwavering in your witness of Jesus Christ, to love people, but to love God more. And they will hate you because of my name. That was Jesus' promise to his disciples. Why do we expect any different? Because we grew up in the East? Because we had it all nice and easy? When we have brothers and sisters being persecuted for their lives on the other side of the globe. And as we start to face it here, and we will, it's okay. Because we have Jesus. And any time that we might want to say, whoa, we can say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And then that seventh trumpet rang and Jesus returned. And that's the good news for us that in our witness, not so many will end up saying woe at the seventh trumpet call. But they will say holy and give glory to our God who comes down from heaven and makes his dwelling among us. And that's the good news. And that's the call of the church today. Be like the two witnesses Go out knowing you have the power and authority of Jesus behind you. And in the midst of suffering and persecution, we will be okay. Just like Philadelphia and Smyrna were okay. And Jesus gave them their reward. And he will give us our reward. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Good and gracious God, as we hear these words, as we come to you, Jesus, I just pray that you would put that boldness within me that was within those witnesses. I pray that you'd put the boldness that as we look back throughout Acts, it says that they were given boldness within to keep proclaiming even in the midst of their persecution. Lord, place that boldness within me. Place it within our church that we'd be unwavering in our witness and that we would testify to those around us to, as I like to say, our friends and family our neighbors and strangers, to know who you are in the things that you have done for us and on our behalf. And Lord, as always, that we would live into the mission that we have as a church to invite hungry 
people to be filled with joy in Christ Jesus. If you know Jesus, you will be filled with joy. There will be no woe coming your way. And so, Lord, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.